It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Carol Larson. Carol Larson is president and CEO of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, where she oversees the foundation and its grant-making activities. The foundation awards $300 million in grants in the United States and internationally, focusing on conservation and science, population and reproductive health, and children, families, and communities. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Carol Larson. So thank you very much. Well, I am so excited to be here with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. I'll read you a few things about her formal uh, biography, but if you've read the book or watched the TED Talk, you know that she's been a lifelong science nerd and that she's a mother and a pediatrician and someone who has just been passionate about the well-being of our children since day one. So it's really great to be able to be here and hear about the latest in your research and also your book. But she is a pediatrician and the founder and CEO of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. She's been profiled in The New Yorker. And as I mentioned, um, her TED Talk has been viewed over three million times. She is the author of the newest book, The Deepest Well, which you'll have a chance to, to uh, purchase outside, which I've had the great privilege of reading. So great to be here with you, Nadine. Uh, Thank you. So, <laughs> we're gonna jump right into the question of the evening. Does childhood trauma live in the body forever? The short answer is that it doesn't have to. Oh. And, um, and that's the reason why I wrote The Deepest Well, because um, when we learn the science of how early adversity uh, gets under our skin and changes our biology, for, I think for a lot of folks, initially hearing about it, it, it feels a little um, uh, you know, sad or hopeless. Um, but for me, it's, this science is profoundly hopeful yeah. because when we understand the, the, the mechanism, when we know how this happens, then that's when we get to get creative about how we interrupt it, right? And there's a lot we can do. Yeah, it's, it is a hopeful story. So let's go back to, um, I think many people in the audience know about ACEs, but your own discovery of that research out of Kaiser and how to get a sense of what the childhood trauma is when you see a patient. Talk a little bit about that test and the score. Yeah, uh, so, so my experience of this um, initially was, um, I was seeing patients in my clinic and just in the day-to-day -day process of caring for kids in Bayview-Hunters Point, this very underserved neighborhood of San Francisco, uh, what I was seeing was that I was, I was seeing lots of kids who were referred to me for um, various different problems, most often ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, but, you know, as I was doing the history and physical, the funny thing about ADHD is that there's, there's all these symptoms, which most of my patients had, you know, inattentiveness and difficulty with impulse control and all these different things. But at the bottom, there's this one line that says, and it's not caused by any other disorder, mm -hmm. right? And that piece is what stuck with me because for most of my patients, they were also experiencing just these incredible experiences of, of trauma and adversity. So, you know, parents who were uh, mentally ill or a substance dependent or um, or if there was violence going on at home and uh, so when I started kind of diving into this science about how childhood adversity um, affects kids developing brains and bodies reading that ACE study reading the adverse childhood experiences study I talk about it a little bit uh, in the, in the book like that moment of reading this research just literally blew the top off of my head. <laughs> and it was, you know, understanding that, wow, this doesn't just affect um, kids' behavior, but it also profoundly affects risk of things like 
you know, heart disease and um, uh, cancer and chronic lung disease, um, even Alzheimer's. Right. So. so as I understand it, that was done by Kaiser uh, it was. back in the 90s, and they developed a, a questionnaire of 10, 10 questions to ask and then correlated it with longer-term health problems. That's and right. those questions were about how, what kind of traumatic experiences, like the ones that you've mentioned, in terms of witnessing violence or suffering separation from a parent, um, that, kind of, that kind of trauma. Yes, that's yeah. right. And, and as the score of if you answer four of the ten questions or more, that it was when you hit that marker that that really did predict in many ways or correlate with, um, with later health problems as well as perhaps explain what the child was experiencing at that time. Did I get that right? Or, so that's uh, right. So that's right. So they, um, they asked about these 10, 10 categories of uh, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Right. And um, the two big things that they found, one is that these ACEs are incredibly common. Yeah. So two-thirds of their... Uh, population had at least one ACE and one in eight folks had four or more. And the more you had, the greater the risk to your health. So for a person who has four or more, their risk for seven out of ten of the leading causes of death in the United States Hmm. is dramatically increased. We're talking about double the risk for heart disease, the number one killer, double the risk for cancer, two and a half times the risk for uh, stroke, uh, almost four times the risk for chronic lung disease, um, and you know, 1.6 times the risk for diabetes. And at first, when the researchers, you know, found this this very strong association, they thought, oh, it must be because those folks, you know, they do all these health damaging behaviors, right? Like you have a rough childhood and you're more likely to drink or smoke and do all the things that are going to ruin your health. Um, but, and this is why I love science. Yeah. Because when you actually dive into the science and do the statistical analysis, um, health-damaging behavior only accounts for about half of the increased risk. Yeah. So that's good news, is that if you, if you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't overeat, you, it in half, yeah, right? <laughs> you can cut your risk in half. That's wonderful. But the other piece is that even if you don't do those things, you're still at increased risk. Yeah. And that's where scientists have been filling in the blanks. Yeah. So as I said, um, Dr. Burke Harris, as the science geek and nerd, she sees these patients, she reads the Kaiser study, and really starts to work with it and explore it more and get a lot of support for doing it. And over the past number of years, I think I read in the book that 32 states in D.C., Yes, that's right. Have tested this assessment, these 10 questions, uh, and found that, as you said, over half the population says 55 to 62 percent of the patients who were assessed in this way had one of these scores, at least one, but that between 13 and 17 percent of those had four or more. That's right. So, and these are across populations. You know, you tend to think, oh, these are people who have bad behaviors or something you can avoid yeah. it. But also it's in different, different settings, rural, urban, suburban, different economic levels. That's right. Rich, poor, every ethnic uh, uh, and racial group. It's, it's, it, it's about it's all how the us. brain reacts. So. Yeah. So there's a part of you, or me, when I read the book or when I first met you and heard about it, I thought, well, don't we already know this? You know, I mean, stress is bad for kids and it just takes resilience, you know? It's just like some kids have good teachers and it Mm -hmm. helps. So why do we need this test and do some more? But what I took away from it is that this ACEs questions can really help you identify the intensity of it Mm -hmm. and then decide um, how best to respond as a pediatrician. So it really helped guide your practice. But walk us through an example of that. So if someone comes to your clinic, a mm-hmm. mom bringing her three-year-old with a well ch- for a well child, how does this thing work? Yeah, so I, I talk a, a little bit about that in, uh, in The Deepest Well. So in, in our center, um, the Center for Youth Wellness, which we also work... Um, side by side with a pediatric clinic, the, right. the Bayview Trail Health Center. And 
every child who comes in to see me for their regular physical exam, you know, we check their height, we check their weight, we check their blood pressure, and we also check their ACE score. And we have this, um, just a simple form, where we list the 10 traditional adverse childhood experiences. Um, and then we've also developed a, a couple of others that we think increase risk for kids. Um, and we actually tell parents not to tell us which ones mm -hmm. their child has experienced, only how many. And in our center, they, we have, you know, parents give the information if their child is zero to 12, okay. and if they're 13 to 18, um, the parent does a report and the child does a self-report. And what that tells me is that if that patient has a score of zero, they're low risk of having um, you know, this, this overactivity of the stress response that we now know to be toxic stress. Mm -hmm. They're at low risk. If they have a score of zero to three, they're at moderate risk. And if they have a score of four or more, I know they're at high risk. And um, we have this um, integrated primary care and behavioral health model where for my kids who are moderate risk or high risk, mm -hmm. I connect them to a care coordinator. I, because as a pediatrician, my visits are 15 minutes long, mm -hmm. 20 if I'm lucky. Mm -hmm. And if I had to be the one to unpack exactly what has gone on for every patient, there is no way that I could see 10 patients in an afternoon. So we really, in order for us to um, enable every patient to be screened, we had to figure out a way that the primary care clinician does their piece, identify kids who are at low, moderate, or high risk. And then, you know, we do what we do. We, we connect them to services. And so that is our care coordinator then does an, an intake and a further assessment, and then we connect families to mental health services, care coordination, uh, we have uh, psychiatry as well, and then other services that are designed to um, help to mitigate an overactive stress response. So we have things like biofeedback and, and neurofeedback. Those are, those are fancy stuff that we have at our, yeah. our center. So but, we'll get yeah. to that because I'm sure as people in the audience hear about that, they go, yeah. wow, I wish I had that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, let's step back a little bit because one of the things that you know, I was saying, why is ACEs different? Why is it so important since we've all have some gut feeling about stress? So it's partly that you can quantify it and know when it's hit a toxic level, but it's also, which is a wonderful journey in the book about understanding, as you said at the beginning, how it gets under your skin, literally, how it changes your physiology, that that kind of adverse trauma. So just say, I don't know how many science geeks we have in the audience, but just say a little bit about some of those things that we now know, those kind of extreme or four more ACEs mm -hmm. kinds of situations, actually change and get under your skin? What yeah. are those physiological responses? So it, when, when we experience something you know, scary or, or stressful or traumatic, it activates our, our stress response, right? Our fight or flight response. And this is normal and healthy. It activates hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. Um, but the, the and, and these hormones at, essentially focus our entire brains and bodies on survival, right? So it, um, you know, our, our amygdala, you know, activates the fear response and, and um, the, the, the part of our brain that is um, responsible for judgment and executive functioning, the prefrontal cortex, that gets turned down uh, a little bit. And uh, because you, you actually don't want judgment getting in the way of survival, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's less obvious is that it also activates our immune system. Activation of our stress response um, turns on our immune response because if you are in, you know, if you're in a forest and there is a bear, if that bear gets his claws into you, you want your immune system to be primed yeah. to yeah. bring inflammation to stabilize yeah. the, the wound, uh, which is great if you're in a forest and there's a bear, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the problem is what happens when the bear comes home every night? Yeah. 
right? And this system is activated over and over and over again. And it leads to changes in children's, the structure and function yeah. of children's developing brains. They are developing hormonal systems, their immune system, leading to um, chronic inflammation. And it also uh, leads to changes to the way our DNA is read and transcribed. Yeah, yeah. And so now it's starting, we'll go back to how we opened about it's hopeful. So if you're in these situations and you have a situation that's four or more in yeah. ACEs, and all these things are getting under your skin, you're not only occasionally experiencing the bear, but the bear is living with you yeah. all the time, wherever you are. Yeah. Um, how does that, and, and you, you go to Bayview, or someone, and someone is, you're fortunate to have someone know you have a score of four or more. Yeah. Um, how, how, where's the hope? How is it that... Oh my um, God. <laughs> what, what, what's the treatment? This is why I have the most awesome right. job in the world, right? Because my job is to figure out how do we um, to develop and implement these treatments and, and to try to make sure that, that every doctor in America has access to be able to do this. Yeah. So all, all of the research, what it shows us is that um, just as we can activate each other's stress response, as humans, biologically, we have the capacity to buffer each other's stress response, right? Biologically, it's, it's, it's really awesome. Hmm. And um, so, but the first thing that we have to do, for example, that, that screening tool, that screening process that happens in our clinic, yeah. that is step one. Right. We need, um, so, so I, doing the early identification, and then what I say to my patients is, because of what your child has experienced, I say, you know, to their parents, mm -hmm. because of what your child has experienced, their bodies may be making more stress hormones than the average person. And that can uh, manifest, right? That can look and feel like having trouble controlling your impulses or um, uh, getting sick easily when you're overwhelmed or increased risk for things like asthma or behavioral problems or um, increased risk of obesity. And so in our clinic, I say, I'm going to refer you to someone who can, uh, you know, offer you some services to help us address this. And what happens is when parents understand, oh, my goodness, you know, I thought maybe, I thought maybe he, he was too young to know what was going on, hmm. right? Hmm. Or um, for many of my patients, so some of them, some of my patients have behavioral problems, but some of my patients have no behavioral problems. The three-year-old girl um, that you were talking about from the book was a little girl who simply wasn't growing. Yeah. And when I told her mom that the reason for her child's poor growth may actually have to do with her child's environment, that mom was so motivated because she she was willing to do for her child what she wasn't willing, able to do for mm -hmm. herself, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's like, you know, the, the mama bear kicks in. Yeah. And, and just, just that understanding, just that framing was so, I see it every day. It's so critically important mm -hmm. for parents to understand. And the other thing I tell my parents is, you know, but in order for you, you know, we have the capacity to be a buffer to our children, but in order for us to do that, we have to put our own oxygen mass on. Yeah, yeah. So if, if there's, you know, oftentimes the thing that is traumatic to the child is also traumatic to their caregiver, right? right? A lot of these things happen in family systems. And so helping parents to understand if they may have an overactive stress response mm -hmm. and how to work on mitigating that so that they can be available to be a buffer and that they can also help to keep their child safe and have a more healthy, well-regulated circumstances their in their home is so critical. Right, right. Yeah, so that is hopeful. And part of, um, you know, when you were talking about what life is like for a pediatrician, uh, 15 minutes max, uh, you'll get built, you know, you can bill for that, but you can't bill for the next 15 if you spend it. Um, yeah. 
and just the lack of resources so often of people that refer. Uh, I guess it gets to the question about even if you don't have extensive psychiatric mental health counseling services readily available, you still recommend that the pediatrician or the clinical provider screens and that there are things to do even without those extensive wraparound services, like the awareness itself is helpful as well as it helps the doctor prescribe. But So I was um, uh, speaking <laughs> with... Um, I was speaking at a conference for the National Crittenden Foundation mm -hmm. that works with um, pregnant and parenting uh, young women. And they're not a clinic, they're not a health center, but they have been helping um, the young women that, with whom they work understand their adverse childhood experiences and how it's affecting their parenting. Mm. And it has been absolutely transformative. Mm -hmm just the understanding, wow, because of what's happened to me, I may have an overactive stress response and it's really important for me to get the resources to deal with it. So even if in, in an individual clinic, uh, they don't necessarily have the, the resources, if we don't empower caregivers and parents with the knowledge mm -hmm. so that if in the community there is a domestic violence shelter or there is, you know, someone has access to uh, you know, many of the excellent community-based organizations or things like, we know that exercise, regular exercise helps to metabolize stress hormones and enhance um, the uh, uh, things like endorphins, which, which buffer the stress response. Right? So if it's, if it's even you know, getting out there and going for that walk or going to the gym or downloading the, the Headspace app on your phone and doing that mindfulness you know, 20 minutes twice a day, I, my mission is to empower individuals and families and parents with this knowledge and I believe that there is a tremendous amount that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as well as keep being advocates for those other services That's to right. be available. But yes, the six pillars or the core treatment areas that you uh, really prescribe and hone in on when um, you find someone with a score of four or more um, have to do, why don't you we say they do have to do with exercise and yeah. nutrition so, and... So when we looked at the research and our team looked at over 16,000 research articles, yeah. um, the, 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 the strongest um, body of science it is, looks at uh, sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, mental health, and healthy relationships mm -hmm. as having really the strongest evidence for healing the, the essentially the toxic stress response that happens in the body. All of these things reduce stress hormones, uh, reduce inflammation, and enhance neuroplasticity. And um, the, but the thing that's really important about it is, and it, folks say, you know, well, like, which one should I do and how do I do it and which, in what, what order and how, <laughs> the really key thing is understanding the framing, understanding the context of, okay, you know, I, I'm having this overactive stress response, what works for me? You know, maybe I, when, I, when I do my workout every day, um, th that's really important. And for some people, you're going to lay, you know, I got to do my meditation <laughs> and my workout and make sure that I, you know, uh, have a, a diet that is, you know, high in, you know, lean protein and avoid high sugar, high fat foods and, you know, uh, you know lots of, uh, you know, whatever, you know, fish yeah, and that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So that's... Different things. For yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but that time out, I know a lot of schools and things are, are just trying to, to focus on the meditation part or noticing how it is you're feeling. And for the caretaker to notice that as well is, yeah. is huge. Um, so talk a little... So it's the 90s, Kaiser does that study, then thanks to you and some other people, Victor Carrion at Stanford... Yeah. Uh, a lot more testing of the tool and mm -hmm. assessment to kind of validate it and follow a lot. And then to now start, you've started now, of course, um, a chance with what, what do we do with this tool and yeah. 
what, how do we respond to it? So say a little bit about what you're doing now with the Best Practice Network. Yes, so um, uh, right now there are four uh, percent of pediatricians in the United States are screening for adverse childhood experiences. Mm. And four. Um, <laughs> I believe strongly that that's something that needs to change yeah. because all of the science tells us that when we do early detection and early intervention, kids do better. Yeah. We just have better outcomes. And so at the Center for Youth Wellness, we've created the National Pediatric Practice Community on ACE screening. And this is, all, this is um, a, a virtual network that any, any pediatrician or primary care clinician can, can sign up, you know, go online, nppcaces.org, and be part of this community that is learning together about how we do this work what are the best practices? What are the latest? What is the latest science? And then we literally have like practical stuff like what billing codes do you use? Where do you put this in your electronic health record? Right? How do you know if your practice is um, is ready? And how do you build? Um, uh, how do you make the case for your practice if this is something that you want to introduce uh, to your to your clinic or to your colleagues? And um, What's exciting for me How is many that, sites do you have now that are participating? Yeah, so we just, just launched uh, the practice community um, last year, and right. we have six pilot sites yeah, around the country right. where we actually, uh, in addition to the virtual network, which anyone can join, right. where we actually will send a clinical quality improvement trainer out mm -hmm. to walk through for folks to do that training with their staff yeah. and learn their EHR and show them how to implement the tools. Is one of them in LA? Yeah, USC. USC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. And one's the Harlem Children's Zone area? Yeah, yeah. Harlem Children's Zone. Um, we actually have um, uh, one in one of the, the um, uh, federally qualified health centers that yeah. works in partnership with Harlem Children's Zone. And then also um, we're, we're chatting right now with yeah. Harlem Hospital, which oh, okay. we're really excited yeah. about. Um, and then a couple in the Bay Area, yeah. uh, San Francisco General, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General right. is a site. So it's, it's exciting to That's see this great. happening. So there's this best, the, the tool itself and the best practice. And then um, also, I believe you said you're doing a randomized control trial at UCSF about yeah. kid, you know, separating out the kids who have the ACEs score taken and those who don't and then following them for a while. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is the, the big validation study that we're yeah. doing in partnership uh, with UCSF and, and UCSF Children's Hospital Oakland. <laughs> and, uh, and we're doing a randomized control trial to randomize kids into screening for adverse childhood experiences or not and see um, you know, what is the difference in their clinical outcomes. And then we're also looking at... Um, uh, blood and, and uh, DNA. We're looking yeah. at biological markers yeah. for toxic stress, for this overactive stress response and the changes to the, the brain, hormonal, and immune systems um, to see if we can... Um, we're beginning this process of actually trying to develop clinical biomarkers so that when we, as clinicians, see a child is at risk, that we can look at biomarkers to understand how affected their physiology is. And then hopefully with intervention, uh, we can see um, you know, whether What's or working. not it's healing, whether yeah. or not it's working yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's exciting, that's good. But I'm still stuck on the 4%. So <clears throat> given that these studies have been around now for a while, and uh, your TED Talk's been viewed three million times, and mm -hmm. Uh, there's real science and investment in research that's been by. What do you think, uh, why is it 4% now? And mm -hmm. um, like you're a pediatrician, why wouldn't a pediatrician be using this at this point? So we're ask, actually asking that question uh, as part of our uh, national pediatric practice community and also just reaching out. <laughs> and there are a couple of reasons. I think some clinicians still don't know uh, some know, but they haven't gotten any formal training about, okay, so how do you screen and how do you respond 
What is challenging is that many people feel like in order to do this, they would have to reinvent the wheel themselves, right? And so that's why we created this practice community so that folks could learn together about and, and, and surface, hey, this is the challenge I'm having in my practice or this is driving me crazy or um, this is what's working in my practice and you know, it's really effective. Um, but when we're talking about trauma, mm -hmm. childhood adversity, one of the biggest obstacles is, is simply fear, yeah. right? I think many folks have expressed to me that they're just afraid of opening Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of asking a question if they don't feel like they know exactly all the things that they need to do to respond. And this is difficult, painful stuff. Yeah. And you know, the one thing I will say is that some, some clinicians have said to me, well, you know, those questions are just, just too invasive, yeah. right? And I'm just like, Really? Because <laughs> I, I remember when I was in medical school and I learned how to do a prostate exam, right? Yeah. That's I can't be more, yeah. It can't be more invasive <laughs> than that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, well, I mean, and, the point is yeah. we're trained to do a lot That's of stuff. Right. We're doctors. That's what we do. Yeah, well, and also yeah. you try to come up with the best treatment and response. So tell the story that you tell in the book about the... You started to tell it about the three-year-old was failure to thrive. Yes. And how that ACEs score knowledge helped you decide what to do as a doctor. So it's a real aid to you. Yes. So um, this was a, a three-year-old who had come to see me. She, she had um, moved from across the country. And um, she had been, uh, she was less than the third percentile for height and weight. And, and actually um, for her head size as well. And you could kind of see her growth curve, how she had just fallen off the curve. And um, her previous pediatrician had been treating her with nutritional supplementation, Pediasure. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw this, uh, you know, when I saw the family and I, and I saw her growth curve and I'm going through all of my clinical paperwork and I got to the A score and... I was like, oh, because this three-year-old child had an A score of seven. And, um, and so, you know, I said my, the, the regular protocol that I do for all my patients, I said, because of what your child has experienced, I think that her body may be making more stress hormones. Uh, and I think this may be what's interfering with her growth. And, um, and I remember her mom was just nodding. And I was like, oh, you've heard of this before. And she said, no, but it just, it, it makes so much intuitive sense. Like this, um, she just got it. It just made sense to her. And so when I connected her with um, a, a two-generation intervention mm -hmm. called child-parent psychotherapy that works with both the child and the mom's own history of adversity, and for her to be able to recognize that and how that was um, affecting her ability to be able to provide a safe environment for her child and working with that mom. And, and the, the therapist that worked with them was incredibly um, you know, skilled. This is a wonderful protocol, a very effective protocol. And, um, and within six months, that girl was back on the growth curve. Mm -hmm. And what I think is wonderful what I think is wonderful, the corollary on that, which I think is so awesome, is that her nine-month-old brother, when he came in, to, when I saw him for his first visit, he had had two pneumonias and three ear infections before um, I had seen him. And I had, and no, he had four ear infections, and I had actually referred him to an ear, nose, and throat specialist because you, you, know, you have four inf ear right, infections right. in your first year, you get a referral to ENT. And after we implemented the child-parent psychotherapy, the little one had not another ear infection, not another pneumonia in the 18 months since I've been following them up. Wow, wow. What, what made that, and they didn't move to a different neighborhood? They did not move, They didn't. No. 
So what, uh, what uh, really what, what, what made the difference? What so, changes, you know, yeah. one of the big, one of the really important pieces yeah. was in this situation, um, the dad who had been present at the first visit when I first saw them, um, he, um, mom ended up getting a restraining order mm. because this, you know, this was a, uh, the case where, as I mentioned, she was able to yeah. do for her kids what she really had not been able to do for herself once she understood that it was affecting her children's health. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes, yeah. So sometimes it's both awareness and, and, and then taking some, having the, the support to take some action. That's right. That, and, yeah. and in fact, our yeah. child parent psychotherapist actually helped mom through right. that process. So we had that. And these, this family had seen other health providers who you know, thought it's a nutrition issue. Yes. Which um, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was something else in the course of that exam without, without doing that ACEs scoring. So um, the other thing that I love about the story is that I now, when I give uh, grand rounds to, uh, you know, in hospitals or across the country, I, um, I use this as one of my case presentations because mm -hmm. I think it, that it's a good way for doctors to learn is by seeing case presentations. Yeah. And I was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was doing this as part of a presentation to doctors. And literally at the end of the presentation, a doctor stood up and said, oh my goodness, I have that patient in front yeah, of me. Yeah. I have an 18-month-old with failure to thrive, not responding to nutritional supplementation. I, was, I just ordered a genetics workup and a neurology workup, but no one has checked an ACE score. Hmm. And he said, we've been calling them for their genetics and the neurology appointments and the phone has been shut off. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so in that case, it's not just about, you know, more effective care. It's also more efficient care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So um, we've been talking about the importance of, especially in those formative years, and in the book you, you talk a lot about of how all of these, this getting under your skin is particularly important when your skin is growing and <laughs> all mm -hmm. your systems are growing. But I know in the audiences that you've been talking to, and I know when I read the book, just going right to the questions, you know, you ask about yourself and your own children and, and think about your own responses to situations. But um, talk about for those people in the audience who might have, uh, who might work in youth centers, you know, yeah. about is it ever too late to do something about this? Or how about even as an adult who might now, like in the case that you refer to, mothers thinking, oh gosh, that might explain some of what I'm doing. So yeah. is it hopeful at every stage, even if it's not something that um, you yeah. talked about when you were really young? I believe that it absolutely is. Yeah. I, I mean, we, yes, we know that the earlier we start, the more tools that we have to work with. But it's never too late, number one, to recognize, okay, this is what's going on, and number two, to begin implementing these interventions, the sleep, exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, yeah. mental health, and healthy relationships. And, um, um, but one of the key things, I think, is really making sure that um, we're also putting our own oxygen mask on, mm -hmm. right? To make sure that um, as we are as we are providing this buffering for kids, whether you're a parent or a caregiver or you work in an educational environment, there's so much that folks are doing right now with uh, trauma-sensitive and trauma-responsive mm -hmm. educational environments. Um, but a lot of the folks that I see who are working, caring for kids, oftentimes, um, are in this situation where they're facing their own burnout, right? Mm -hmm. And working with kids who are experiencing such challenges is often, you know, traumatic for us. And especially if, if an adult has their own history of adversity. And so understanding how we can um, really begin advocating for systems that understand this as a root cause and provide supports not only for um, the, the young folks, 
but also for those who are caring for them right. as well. Right, yeah, that two-generational for sure. That's exactly. Yeah, so um, we're going to turn to question and answer fairly soon. I think we have about five minutes or so, but um, so how do we get the number up on the 4%, and what does it take to, um, how does the American Academy of Pediatrics work yeah. in the sense of guidelines or protocols, and how close are you to that, or what? what's in your horizon? So we're not that far off. Yeah. Uh, we're not that far off. And um, the, the, I think the number one most important thing that we can do is raise awareness. Um, we all need to be shouting this from the rooftops because in order for us to be able to put in place the infrastructure and the policy supports that are going to support things like reimbursement for okay. screening, right? Um, uh, we need to, uh, we need the public will to make that happen and to hold our policymakers accountable for supporting these um, systems. Um, but the other thing that we need to do is we need to reduce the, the barriers. We need to provide the training. Uh, that's a big part of why we um, created the National Pediatric um, Practice Community. Uh, we've also created other uh, resources um, uh, to help raise awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, we just launched our, our Stress Health uh, Public Education campaign, mm -hmm. which I'm really excited about, just to help um, families and, and educators and caregivers understand um, you know, what the root of the problem is and how they can be part of the solution. And that is stress-health.org. So we're, we're, we're doing it bit by bit. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. The other one that, um, when I was thinking about the, the clinic with Harlem Children's Zone or um, being here in LA and knowing what First Five does in terms of supporting the best, oh, and I'm gonna forget, the best start communities. Yeah. Uh, what could community people do? So you're not a pediatrician, you're not yeah. a nurse, but you live in a community and you wanna shout this from the rooftop. Uh, how do community activists or organizers get involved with this? Well, I think there's an incredible amount that folks in communities can do. Um, n number one, just being part of raising that awareness in communities and providing um, supports that are really looking at, again, that two-generation approach. Okay. And I think that there's, a, for example, there are so many community-based organizations who are doing excellent work in um, uh, supporting parents and caregivers, mm -hmm. or under, like like the first fives, you know, mm -hmm. like the uh, the zero to threes, like mm -hmm. you know, all all of these organizations that are are currently doing this work. One of the things that um, that we are trying to do as part of our national uh, uh, public education initiative is what we call an air game and the ground game. And the air game is, you know, raising awareness and, and, and putting this information out there and social media and all of that kind of stuff. But the, the ground game is then advocating for um, uh, giving uh, tools and resources to folks who are organizing, right, uh, to be able to advocate for trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive schools in their community. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, to be able to provide uh, supports for parenting groups, or if you're a mommy blogger, or you know whatever it is, uh, in in your community, and um, we've seen that has been happening in San Francisco. Um, the San Francisco Unified School District yeah. has been uh, bringing this work and and the yeah. science of toxic stress into schools and. Um, it's happening it's bit by bit. Different. And you mentioned in the book, you talked about the Turnaround Center. Turnaround for Children. Yeah. Oh my yeah, goodness, yeah, yeah. they do amazing work, yeah. yes. So there's some great examples of yes. where that, that kind of comprehensive approach has been That's brought right. in. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was how personal it was. Um, I, I have had the privilege to meet you once or twice over the past four or five years, but now I feel like I really know you. <laughs> and there are a lot of fun asides, and uh, as you can see, uh, she jumps out f for you personality-wise. But um, how has this changed, in terms of this journey that you've been on to understand this more, changed 
your own life, your own awareness. Uh, you have some children. Does it yeah. change how they perceive you? And hey, mom, that's score three or no? <laughs> <laughs> or you, mom, take your own oxygen mask out first. <laughs> it's 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 so funny. I um, so we do have this conversation with our uh, kids uh, about ACEs and and how it can affect us and. It's been really interesting having that conversation with our 14-year-olds. Um, I think one of the biggest ways that it has um, impacted uh, my parenting is, um, you know, in the book, I, um, uh, you know, one of the things that I share is what happens when adversity lands on my door. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, one of the most important lessons is that... Um, as parents, we can't white knuckle it, right? You need the village. And um, whether it's uh, a, a sibling or uh, you know, your child's grandparent or you know, a, trusted, a dear trusted friend, uh, at the times when we are struggling, I think that um, it's easy for many of us as parents um, to say, okay, well, I just gotta push through. Um, and what we now, what this science has, has powerfully done for me is help me understand, you know, even in my own family, that um, even when difficulty strikes, we, you need the safe, stable, and nurturing caregiver for your kids, and then you also need that for yourself. Right, right. Um, and it was very powerful. To reach out. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great. So good, so we're ready for some questions, I think, from the audience, yeah. Um, how come they don't implement this in schools? So this is what educators ask me all the time. Should we be screening for ACEs in schools? And my answer is no, I don't, I don't believe that we should. And, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, because teachers have a hard enough job. <laughs> and um, I think that we can create uh, trauma-sensitive and uh, trauma-responsive school environments. But when you screen for something, especially if the outcome can, is, is risk of a not just behavioral problem but also a health problem, it's who has the responsibility of following that up and responding to it? And um, what, we, what I do think that we need to do is create the right connections between our healthcare systems and our educational systems to appropriately um, support kids um, to do that early detection and provide the appropriate support. So what I would love to see, I would love to see, you know, that same form that to get your four-year-old to sign them up for pre-K or, you know, that the, the school physical form before kindergarten. You know, I would love to, it, it says, you know, they have to have their immunizations, they have to have their TB test. I would love to see on there that it ha they have to have an A screen. Right, like every child before they go to school, creating creating those types of systems, and then for kids who are experiencing toxic stress, I would love to. You know, I send my patients uh, to school with their asthma action plan. Mm -hmm. I would love to have like the toxic stress action plan, mm -hmm. right? Where we just where the uh, you know the the school has has a plan about you know how to what to do and how to respond and how to help that child deescalate. Mm -hmm. Good evening, my name is Gerardo Gomez. Um, first of all, thank you for your sacred presence and for creating this beautiful space. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, my question is, um, let me try to gather it. One, um, Dr. Gabor Mate, mm -hmm. he's known for trying to address um, addictions by addressing childhood trauma. Yes. And so um, here we have the other component. We're trying to, ad we're trying to ad address children's trauma before they get addicted to medication. Mm -hmm. And so my question is the 4%. So the 4%, um, what's the question with the pharmaceutical industry? Because if you're, if you're not addressing the trauma, that means the pharmaceutical industries are making money out of children who are being hooked on these um, conditions and basically not addressing the issue. Yes, we do recognize that kids who experience adversity are at dramatically increased risk for addiction. 
Uh, and part of that has to do with how this overactive stress response leads to changes in the brain's reward center, which is the area of the brain that you know is is uh, stimulated by by you know, heroin and cocaine and uh, you know uh, all all these actually you know gambling and sex and high sugar high fat foods all the things that feel good uh, activate that part of the brain and and that part of the brain sees changes when we have high doses of adversity that increase the risk of addiction. Uh, so addressing childhood trauma is absolutely key. Preventing it is even better. Um, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, so far in the work that I've been doing, I don't, um, I don't know that we're necessarily on their radar uh, uh, yet. Uh, I'm hoping that um, the pharmaceutical industry will be um, want to be wanting to be contributing to solutions as opposed to um, uh, presenting headwinds to this work. Yeah. Um, One but of I, yeah. the interesting interviews, uh, you've done so many interesting interviews, but uh, I, it might have been Mother Jones, but about the current opioid crisis. And I think you were commenting that you notice a change in how we're talking about it this time than what we did about crack addiction in the in the 90s, that there seems to be more willingness to talk about not a blame or a moral failure, but rather something that happened. And you were making the comparison with the same thing about ACEs, that this isn't about stigma. This is yeah. about understanding how brains work. Yep. And... Um, so yeah, did I get that interview right? No, yeah, you did right? actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. You yeah. really uh, did the homework there. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Just Google her. <laughs> Next. Um, thank you for this evening and all that you do. I was just curious about your thoughts on moving upstream and thinking mm -hmm. about the next generation of physicians and how we start to incorporate this into med school and, and all of that. I, I would love to see that happening in a really systematic way. I hear about um, places where that's happening um, uh, uh, sporadically. Um, you know, my own alma mater, UC Davis School of Medicine, is incorporating this as part of their uh, medical education curriculum. I, uh, I had a great experience recently. I was speaking somewhere uh, to a bunch of educators, actually, and one woman stood up and said that uh, she was from Alaska and that uh, when she saw the, the film made by Jamie Redford, the resilience film, uh, The Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope, uh, she went to tell her son, uh, who was in medical school, just started medical school, you know, oh, you've got to learn about this work and Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is doing this work. And he said, oh, mom, they made us watch her TED Talk as part of our <laughs> med school orientation. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> so I love hearing that. I would love it even more if that was an absolute uh, routine, that if that wasn't like a one-off story, but uh, that was kind of standard of medical education. Good evening. My name is Leora Wolf. So I have a question. If you could do some expansion around um, Dr. Penderhughes and Dr. Hardy and Dr. Monica Williams' work on racial trauma and mm -hmm. adverse community experiences. Mm -hmm. We know that the indices, the original ACE indices are pretty limited right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can kind of bring us into how you, you're working on getting into some of the social constructions of trauma. I, I mentioned that there were 10 traditional adverse childhood experiences. And it, the original study was done in a population that was 70% Caucasian and 70% college educated. They really weren't looking at experiences of discrimination. And um, our team, when we um, kind of updated the tool that, that we use, we score s separately because we don't have the same population level data about health risk, but we also ask about experiences of discrimination and some uh, other factors which we um, which the data shows may also activate the, the stress response and, and lead to a toxic stress biology. Um, but one of the things I talk about in The Deepest Well is um, there's a way in which um, the science also is unifying and brings us together because what, what we recognize is that it's all about the biological stress response. 
That's everybody's fundamental biology. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter of, you know, where you're from or what your socioeconomic background is. And, uh, and we also know that for many people, the color of their skin makes it much more likely that that stress response is going to be activated over and over and over again. Because as they're walking down the street, they may be more likely to be stopped. They, they, they're also very aware that, um, you know, I, I, in fact, I talk about, <laughs> I talk about um, a, an experience in my, in my own family uh, where um, we, you know, my husband and I were concerned that our kids were threatened um, uh, and um, and that biological stress response is the same in all of us and so that is what we need to focus on tackling um, but it also is unifying in the sense that for some families if you're in Appalachia right and the the that plant closed down and you're worrying about being displaced and you're trying to figure out how are you gonna get food on your table for your kids the next day, that also activates your stress response. So all of us are really invested in solving the, the mm -hmm. ultimate underlying problem. I'm Myra Alvarez. I'm with the Children's Partnership. We're a policy and advocacy organization focused on children's health. Um, being in LA County, you can't help but think about the fact that the overwhelming majority of our children are part of immigrant families. Mm -hmm. And we know that the ACEs, it's my understanding that the ACEs questionnaire doesn't account for the protective factors mm -hmm. that immigrant families come with. You know, mm -hmm. They're closer to families, they have social connectedness. Can you talk a little bit about, in today's environment, with the hostile policy environment and this administration, what are the policy impl implications for talking about childhood trauma and moving forward um, a progressive immigration reform agenda? The biggest policy implications from um, my standpoint is that um, we understand that the, the buffering power of, um, of uh, safe, stable, and nurturing relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that's really presenting me with a lot of concern right now is a conservative agenda to end chain migration, which is, you know, families, you know, immigrating and, and staying with a family member, when we recognize that those family relationships are actually really important and powerful and healing. Um, and, I, and, and we as a nation should be wanting to support um, uh, strengthening family relationships. And thinking about how we do think about uh, strengthening uh, families, I think, is critically important. Um, in the original uh, ACE tool does not include um, separation from the caregiver through deportation or migration, but the Center for Youth Wellness, we actually included um, that as a criteria in our supplemental criteria because that was, that was a, uh, an adversity that we were uh, seeing in a high prevalence among our patients. And um, in our center, we do use a family strengths model. Um, we, once, uh, the, the ACE screen is just a risk tool for the primary care provider to do very quickly in, in, um, as part of the visit. But once uh, patients are at risk are identified, then we do this, this family uh, strengths model of looking at, okay, what are the sources of buffering? Uh, what do you have in your community? Um, uh, what are the individual strengths of the, both the child and the parent? What are you doing right? Um, and so we do that as part of our next step assessment and evaluation, um, but it's not part of the original screening tool because we're trying to make that quick and easy enough so that every patient can be screened. And I want to echo a big thank you for this wonderful discussion and conversation. It's been really um, exciting and enlightening and um, wonderful. Um, so I'm Christina Pena. I'm with First 5 LA as well. Uh, we know that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends developmental screenings yep. at uh, age intervals for children 0 to 5. And curious if you've had the opportunity 
with your sites to pilot pairing the ACEs screening with developmental screenings, again, for that niche population of zero to five, and what your thoughts are and what the findings show and, and just what that means when we're thinking of linkage to intervention services. I actually sit on the American Academy of Pediatrics National Advisory Board for Screening. And I work with other uh, uh, folks from around the country who are looking at this, uh, looking at what we're screening for, developmental screening, maternal depression screening, how um, we're responding, uh, assessing that and responding to it. And in our center, we actually do both um, uh, ACE screening and we use the ages and stages questionnaire for uh, routine developmental screening. We also do the modified checklist for autism. And, um, and what's, re what's really interesting that I think is important is that these screens are slightly different because a developmental screen uh, is assessing whether or not a child is meeting their developmental milestones or whether we're concerned that they are off course in some way. Um, an ACE screen is really focused on identifying which patients are at risk, right? And understanding if they're low, moderate, or high risk with a focus of intervening before we get to that point where they're manifesting symptoms, right? By the time that a child's biology is so disrupted that they are either having behavioral or health or developmental problems, it means that the process has been going on for a while. So I'm a strong advocate for developmental screening. I do think that one of the challenges that we face is that uh, many folks ask, well, what's the difference between ACE screening and, and developmental screening? Are they the same or you know, how would we do them? And I think that we need to do both. Thank you.